0: Thank you for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast with me, Adam Miles, recorded in our writer's studio just above the bookshop at Kilometre Zero in Paris. If you enjoy these conversations, there are a few different ways you can support us. First of all, you can leave a rating right now in whatever podcast app you're using. The more ratings we get, the more likely it is that people will discover us. It only takes a few seconds and can really help spread the word. You can also buy books, gifts and apparels from our online store, ShakespeareandCompany.com, where you'll find our popular Year of Reading subscription. 12 books handpicked by our dedicated booksellers, shipped to you or a loved one wherever they are in the world. I'll be back at the end, but until then, sit back and enjoy the Shakespeare and Company
1: podcast.
0: There are few artists whose work is so well known and yet who remain so mysterious as Albrecht Drurer. Mysterious because he lived at that fluid time in the 15th century, where history and legend often blend into one. Mysterious because his works feel so replete with meaning and yet prove so hard to interpret. And mysterious because his skills were so advanced, his genius so profound, that his techniques are hard to replicate even more than five centuries later. All of which is why I can't think of any contemporary writer I'd rather read on Jura than Philip Hoare whose previous works like Leviathan and Rising Tide, Falling Star straddle the often artificially enforced division between history and myth, between our personal mythologies and the so-called real world. Philip's Albert and the Whale is no mere life of them. Rather, it's a psychobiographical dive into the mind of Jura. An investigation of the universe he spirited forth in his work, and how its influence has rippled through the centuries, stirring the lives of artists and writers, how waves move across the surface of the sea, and the currents churn its depths. And of course, because this is Philip Hoare, there's a Cetitian involved, several in fact, but we'll come to them in our discussion, I'm sure. Philip, welcome to the Shakespeare and Company podcast.
2: It's great to be back here with you. Speaking to you from Dublin, in fact. Well, there are worse places to be speaking to us from. (laughs) Indeed, indeed.
0: I'd like to begin um, with your um, your encounter with Jura, which is how the book begins, or at least um, because I said in the introduction we're all kind of familiar with a lot of the works mm-hmm. of Al- Albrecht Jura, even if we don't realise uh, that specific works are by him. So maybe it's better to say your your re encounter with him or your first profound encounter with him. Mm-hmm. Um, and in at the beginning of Albert and the Whale, you you juxtapose these two events. So one is uh, coming into contact with the engravings uh, in a gallery, and the other is visiting a laboratory, a um, a scientific study center where uh, a friend of yours is um, is working with monkeys. Um, and I'm just curious to know. it is about these two events that sort of gave the spark to your renewed interest in jura
2: well they happened both in the same city which i don't name the book but it's boston Mm -hmm. um new england and and it was uh, it happened when i was sort of at the the depths or the height of my whale headedness my (laughs) obsession with whales which really blossomed there because i became in physical contact with with whales and in the wild for the first time and um and, and, that, and that's when I was working towards the, the book that became Leviathan mm-hmm. um, and especially interested in Herman Melville. And I'd read Moby Dick for the first time. Uh, so my head was very much full of that. And it was a very snowy day. And I was it's February and I was wandering around Boston, sort of slightly disconsolate. Um, I was on a book tour for my previous book. And um, I... Um, uh, I, I wandered into the Museum of Fine Arts in uh, in, in Boston and there was an exhibition of Jura's woodcuts and engravings mm-hmm. there uh, uh, and it was astonishing because it was a big white space a modern white space and um, uh, and there was these images on the on the walls which looked as though they'd been run off the office photocopier I mean they were mm-hmm. so modern so new um, these these um, black and white images but they contained colour in a way. It's extraordinary, really, that someone like Jura, I mean, Erasmus said of Jura, he he does in black and white what other artists can only do in Mm. colour. And there was these images, and what what really struck me about these images, which as you say, um, we're kind of all really familiar with, partly because they have entered the verbal uh, vocabulary of, of our culture, especially our Western culture. Uh, and travelled around the world, um, and that has a lot to do with Jura's um, use of printing, mm. but also his very graphic sensibility. And um, but what I really noticed about these images, there were animals in them mm-hmm. all, and the animals weren't incidental; they were um, individual. They had personhood. Mm. They had a sense of actuality and reality. They weren't allegorical as you are used to seeing in in medieval images animals as allegories mm. these were real animals they were observed animals and i knew also the story that joe tried to see a whale mm-hmm. um and so all those things could kind have of tied together also with the fact I right now retrospectively realized i was picking up on a number of references that Melville makes to Jura um, in his writings, in, in, in Moby Dick and in, in, in other places, uh, he, he calls him that fine Dutch savage. <laughs>
1: of course, he
2: wasn't Dutch, um, but, <laughs> but um, actually, Melville is being mischievous. Melville, who was himself half Dutch anyway, is being mischievous as he as he always is, and um, so all those scenes combined to set me off on a kind of rather a Habian search for, for Jura's whale. Um, mm. Yeah.
0: So this, I mean, this is backwards. So before you were writing Leviathan. So we're talking a good, what sort of, fifteen years ago,
2: something like yes, that. Yes. Yes. It is. It is. It is. Yes. So and, and so it's sort of it's lain there, dormant, you know, mm-hmm. jurors as well, waiting to be sort of stirred into action, slouching towards not Bethlehem <laughs> but Southampton, where I live, and um and uh, yeah, and uh, and also because. You know, increasingly, since I wrote Leviathan, I, I found it very difficult to keep whales out of my work. I, every mm. time I start a new book, I think, right, this is not going to be about whales. There's not going to be <laughs> whales. No whales. No, no, no. And then they just because it's like Melville says, you know, these hooded grand hooded, hooded phantoms moving through your head. You know, they they do haunt you, you know, mm. um, partly because of what they represent.
0: Do you think it, it it took so so long, in a sense, for you to to tackle Durer as a, as a as a subject of your writing? Because in in many senses, as I said in the introduction, he's so hard to
2: to pin down. That's the glory of him. He is not. You do not. You can't find a category to put Durer in. Mm-hmm. He is. I mean, it's a cliche, but he is a Renaissance man, and his interests are scientific, astrological, astronomical. Um, natural history, uh, artistic of course, philosophical, um, and those all emerge very very graphically in in his work, um, which is, it just doesn't look medieval, it looks Mm -hmm. modern, you know. He was born in 1471, died in 1528, so he straddles this breakpoint these tectonic plates mm. of the meeting of medieval and modern and he he's like a Janus god looking with one face to the one past and with the other face to the for the future you know and he dreamt about the future he dreamt mm. about a golden age when art would be this extraordinary thing and artists would have a new uh, relevance within society um and of course he was coming you know he's coming from a medieval time when the artist was the artisan that they weren't mm. They weren't anyone special. They weren't anyone deserving of particular interest in their own right. You know, they were recorders. You know, they were manufacturers of images. They weren't, they weren't um, uh, psychological uh, uh, beings that, that, that sort of impressed themselves on their art. You didn't expect to see or hear about an artist really very much at all.
0: Mm-hmm. And so, getting to know Jura, what you had were, was obviously his his work, which um, has been preserved. And because he was, uh, it was he was a, a printer. His work, I assume, is sort of more accessible, perhaps in a in a, uh, in a physical sense than perhaps certain of the uh, other great masters. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you also had his um, his diaries, although uh, interestingly. Uh, There seems to be something almost contradictory about the the work, which is so sort of mysterious, and the diaries, which seem so matter-of-fact.
2: They're very quotidian. They're very uh, pedantic. Um, uh, 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 Almost anally retentive, one might say, in modern (laughs) terms. I mean, he's continually noting down how much it cost him to, like, pass through, you know, uh, uh, some uh, 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 border where he had to pay off you know his dues and then how much he pays for the wine how much he pays for dinner how much he pays for his socks mm. um he's really you know and um i know roger fry the you know the great bloomsbury critic and artist got really really lost his temper when he was editing the diaries He said, well, what's a great artist doing going on about this and what's he doing collecting all of this rubbish for you know shark's fins and monkeys and shells and all this but you know and this juror was shipping this stuff back to Nuremberg wholesale you know Mm. he was like Andy Warhol you know he's so like Warhol in many many ways Mm. you know not least he's a central European I mean, his father was a Hungarian emigre I mean there Mm. are quite a lot of you know uh, correspondences with Warhol and jurors collecting is this Expression of his naivety, of his childlike wonder in things, you know. And that's what you see in those pictures. Those pictures, I realized from the reasons why I really like those pictures, they reminded me of the illustrations to Narnia mm. um, or Tolkien. You know, they're quite fantastical and they have depth and a sense of drawing one in mm-hmm. into this this other world, you know. And he just, he just, which is something which is so it's a sense of fantasy tied up with his sort of slightly archetypal German technical ability and love of, you know, the, 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 the sharpness and the acuteness of things Mm -hmm. and the, the demarcation of things, you know, even his paintings are very demarcated. They're almost like, when you go close to one of his paintings, it's almost like there's little black lines around them. You know, like mm. when you're a child, you, everything had a black line around them. You have yes. to be really persuaded not to draw black <laughs> lines around everything. But no one ever persuaded to, not to draw black lines around <laughs> anything. And that's why they look so, they almost like, they're animate. they're like animated cells,
0: mm-hmm.
2: his paintings, both his colour work and also his his engravings and drawings. And, yeah. Um, yeah
0: i'd like i'd like to pick up on that idea of his um his collecting things it seemed to uh to uh, <laughs> to irritate yeah. fry so much yeah. um because that seemed to be something that was in a sense essential to his work because jura was creating these these incredibly living animals on the page and yet he wasn't always or in fact probably quite rarely drawing from life
2: mm-hmm. Well, most specifically and most fantastically, in in all senses of the word, the, the rhinoceros, which mm-hmm. he drew in 1515, entirely from second-hand reports sent to him from Lisbon of this Indian rhinoceros that had ended up in uh, as a gift from from a, a Maharaja in, it, in in India and sent to Manuel I of of Portugal. Um, and there were German economic agents. I also read almost. Espionage agents in a way, <laughs> sending back these reports. And they knew that Jura would just love it. It's almost they like, it's a clickbait for Jura, really. You know, he'd say, Well, no, look at this. <laughs> and um, and so Jura creates this just beautiful image of this clanking armored armadillion cetacean. I mean, he even adds an extra tusk to the whale, to the rhinoceros' back, which is the horn of a narwhal of a mm-hmm an arctic whale which was supposed to be the original horn of the unicorn so he melds the the mythic and the um uh bestial bestiaries of the medieval period with the scientific rigor and ardor of of his his own time and so and he pushes that all into this image which is squashed into the framing of that woodcut it's just amazing Mm -hmm. when you see the woodcut because the rhino goes its horn goes right up to one end and is Rear goes to the back. And it's <laughs> bursting out as, and it, that's kind of juror all around. He's like sort of bursting to show you this stuff, and mm. I've never seen it, but this is what it must look like. <laughs> and um, and of course, the uh, the irony is, it was so graphic that it remained the way we saw rhinoceroses until David Attenborough arrived. Basically, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. yeah.
0: And that, that's something. It's uh, that sort of glorious paradox in a way. Um, I mean, you use the term at a moment during the book that his uh, his rhinoceros was more rhinoceros than the rhinoceros. Um, and in a funny kind of way, I, I could, I could understand in a way how a kind of, if he was confronted with the, the real animal, uh, he might've, I don't know, when you're confronted with something as a whole, in some way, it's, more difficult to understand than when you're confronted mm. with sort of several different perspectives and a kind of a, a piecemeal appreciation mm. of the of the thing.
2: Yeah, and I think he was, um, you know, again, he's so much acting on his childhood memories. I mean, his father, who was an engraver, um, a engraver, a goldsmith in Nuremberg, who had these. Um, uh, Books which he used for reference um, has probably had a copy of Albertus Magnus's um, Historia Animalium, uh, mm-hmm. which was one of the first modern, relatively accurate sort of animal encyclopedias, if you will. So mm-hmm. that had all these images. Of, and Magnus had been, uh, Albertus Magnus had gone round, he'd been in the Baltic, he'd seen whales and he'd seen, seen whaling. So he was able to actually talk about whales in a realistic way rather than these spouting horned giants. You know, from the edge of the flat world, mm. and uh, so Joe had that sort of, again, that sort of child. You know, you know, the, you know the importance of encyclopedias when you're a child. Well, mm. I, I suppose it's just, I suppose it's just YouTube now. But you know, when you <laughs> and I were a child, we would look at, we would pour over encyclopedias. I think you True. know, and uh, and the 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 kind of imagination uh, that in an encyclopedia, you know, that sense of it's collecting you know the the world in your head and because by collecting you create a cast of images of animals of people of ideas that mm-hmm. becomes your that is your imagination isn't it that, that that that's just what it is
0: yeah 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 it's interesting um that you say uh, that um uh albertus magnus saw a whale um because one thing i suppose that's very specific about marine life in a way, is that unless you see it in the its living context, it's very hard to get a sense of what it is, how it moves, how it lives. I mean, I, I think funny you mentioned David Attenborough, because I remember from his um, series Blue Planet, uh, there was a an episode about the deep seas. And one of the things that really impressed me about that was the idea that some of these creatures, because their bodies are designed to live at incredibly high pressure as soon as they come to the surface they essentially collapse and we don't really have any sense of how they look or how they live unless we see them in context and whales I guess in many ways are the same like unless you see them as in the sea where they're these incredibly graceful incredibly powerful beautiful uh, creatures you're not going to get a sense of of the animal in the same way.
2: Imagine if Dura had an aqualung, you know, I mean, just it's extraordinary what he might have done. Of course, the thing is that we're left with his elaboration, his embroidery upon the natural world. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but. I think that for me, it's the fact that the, the things that he didn't draw and that he didn't see and the fact that when he tries to bridge that gap of ignorance by his, ma- his imagination, or when it's bridged, actually, by an, a, a, a physical um, effect on him uh, h- himself, like the, trying to see a whale in Zeland, this, this stranded whale that he tried to see, actually caused his death. Mm. Um, he caught an infection there, um, which he blamed on the marshy swamps of Zeeland, where he tried to see this stranded whale, uh, which was said to be a, a kilometer long. Was poisoning the village with, with its <laughs> miasma, um, um, and of course he, he, he'd known from his reading of, of Albertus that it's, it's nonsense, you know. A whale mm-hmm. is a he. He knew. I think he must have known a whale was a mammal, um, and he wanted to go and record that. Um, but it's almost as though this is the ultimate hubristic act, you know, by by playing God. You know, the trouble is the artist is playing God. they they're doing something which is only really God's work, is to record mm-hmm. the real original world to recreate it. That's really not uh, within the, the compass of, of, of humanity. They, mm-hmm. they, you shouldn't really mess with that. You know, It's like Martin Luther said, you know, the invention of printing, of releasing these images as well as the texts, but images as well, is going to destabilise the world. It's going to mm-hmm. drive the world mad. Um, and it's not a godly thing. Yeah, often stranded whales were re- regarded as ungodly things or, of course, um, uh, emblems of God's displeasure with us, mm. um, uh, yeah, a, a dysfunction in the natural world. And of course, Jura, who believed his whole life to be uh, as much as he believed in science, he also believed in astrology and he believed his life was determined by the stars. He believed mm. he was labouring under the planet or what he would call the star of Saturn. And under, under melancholy, and of course, that's where his most famous, most cryptic, most strange image, uh, Melancholia One, the, mm-hmm. the, the ungendered angel surrounded by these strange implements in a, a moonlit sea behind him uh, or her. And so it was that sense of the artist's inability to do things mm-hmm. is as interesting as is, as their ability to do things and I think that's what you know that correlates with the fact that Durek didn't see the whale he wasn't able to mm. record the whale it makes him more interesting. and mm. and actually I, I wish Roger Fry would actually take notice of that because <laughs> he's so bloody up himself Rye Fry with his psychoanalytical Freudian head on him he's not looking at this person who's transcending this stuff and in fact mm. Looking to the future, this golden age, and that's what and Jura at the end of his life says the only thing it's worth an artist doing is recording the natural world mm-hmm. the only thing that's worth doing
0: yeah one um one other person who who we'll talk about again a bit later i think um, who who wrote a biography of Jura so panofsky uh, but at a moment you quote him as saying that um, Jura defied the objective laws of nature and Crucially, abolished the distinction between hallucination and reality, um, and I think there's something very interesting going on there. And you mentioned Fry as his kind of, with his kind of Freudian analysis. One other psychoanalyst or analytical psychologist who you come to several times during the book is, of course, Carl Jung. And uh, I mean, I found it interesting because Jung, um, I've had a long-held interest in Jung, and. He seems to go through different kind of phases in the popular zeitgeist. And I'd say until quite recently, until the last few years, he's often been kind of dismissed as kind of hippy dippy kind of, you know, a, a little, a little bit silly in some way. Uh, but I've noticed particularly with writers I've interviewed over the last few years, Jung seems to be coming back as a, a touch point for understanding uh, particularly how writers and artists from previous generations have engaged with the world and the unconscious.
2: Yeah, I mean, um, Jung's red book, you know, this book in which he recorded his dreams or his analyses of his dreams, but also painted himself. I never really knew about uh, Jung's, keep conflating the two, Jung's um, artistic expression. Mm -hmm. And those, the the red book is just like, it's like an illuminated manuscript, isn't it? And it's almost Tolkien esque as well Mm. because it goes into these strange images which are allegorical uh, 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 and Freudian because Jung's roots are with his work with Freud. Um, But yeah, I think those have a much more modern way of looking at at a world which is very dysfunctional in its relationship Mm -hmm. with nature and the whole notion of dominion over nature, you know, this Christian inheritance. And then of course, the enlightenment inheritance, the Mm -hmm. way of looking at nature, which is very categorical, literally making categories of nature, of of naming it. That's what's really interesting about Jira. And that's why I think he allies with Jung. Jura's not interested in making categories about about animals. He he, he, he is interested in for their own sake. he doesn't categorise, although he does create categorical images of humans, oddly mm. enough. Um, he doesn't do that to animals, which is really interesting. Mm. Um, so, yeah, that link with with Jung I found really, really strong. Uh, and, um, and then, of course, in my book, links too with Thomas Mann, who... Has another relationship with Young. Yes. He doesn't. He doesn't like Young. You know. No. <laughs> He's living in the same town. I love it. It's like It's like this kind of soap opera of like <laughs> huge European, but but they're sort of squabbling over things and and it's uh, yeah. That's what that's why I love about you know what I the way I've tried to write Albert and the Whale is that you have all these kind. I've tried, you know, because all my life I've been sort of like, you know, I started out as a biographer and then become sort of slightly stranger. And I realized (laughs) that you don't have to tell people all the boring stuff. Sometimes you just need to, you know, sometimes the dates and like um, citing quotations and things, just tell the story, what's interesting about it. And, you know, Mm -hmm. look at the way Thomas Mann told his stories, you know, the way that Dura enters Thomas Mann's stories or Mm -hmm. later on, Marianne Moore, the American poet. Um, so I love the way that these people become characters in their own stories, and they're almost projecting themselves. You know, I through me, Jura was allowed to project himself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so slightly arrogant, say, but he was allowed to project himself into Man, into Mario Moore, into Andy Warhol, mm-hmm. because he has now another context. We now have Andy Warhol. And Andy Warhol's, on his grave are the praying hands of Jura mm-hmm. engraved on Jura's on Andy Warhol's grave, which is twi- filmed 24-7. You know, you can watch Andy Warhol's grave. Jura I mean, would have done that with his grave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He would have done that <laughs> if he could. He would totally would have done that. disciples dug him out three days after he'd been buried to take plaster casts of his... A, a very Warholian thing. Mm-hmm. You know, the whole notion of the, the reliquary power of an artist, which is almost... Homeopathic, um, almost like the king's evil, you know, this notion that you could touch the monarch's robe and be cured of some. Mm -hmm. There's this power of art. And because I was writing this and uh, finishing it during the the pandemic, I was really, I wasn't putting those things in there deliberately, but I was thinking about it. I was thinking about the power of art that, and because I was prevented, one of my last trips was to. Paris I was staying with you at uh, Shakespeare and Company and uh, I'm not going to ruin the book because the last that's the last (laughs) thing but um was you know and of course that had been we'd all been we art had been taken away from us the Mm physical physical interaction with art except with literature which is really interesting Mm -hmm. um but you know going to see pictures going to see places um and I really you know so I was it was very strange timing for me because the book involved a lot of travel European travel and um You know, to Munich, to Vienna, to Nuremberg, to Paris, to Amsterdam, to Madrid, um, to see the the physical remains of Jura, who, like Mm -hmm. St Cuthbert's relics, which were spread out over England and and Wales and Scotland. So Jura's relics, his his Mm -hmm. physical relics, his his genetic relics, you know, um, his spit and hair are in those paintings, you know. Mm. His hand is in the, the printing of the engravings. Um, so go and to go and see his woodblocks, for instance, or to go and see a lock of his hair. Yeah, Albert in, in, in Vienna, you know. Um, yeah,
0: it's. Um, I was I was going to talk about this a bit later, but you've just made me. Um, you've just made reference to it, so I'll, I'll ask you about it now. Is um, one thing one thing I noted down while while rereading Albert a few days ago um is uh, and I have it just in front of me is Philip's books as unreligious intellectual pilgrimages <laughs> um and what you were just describing there seemed to feed into that perfectly um and that idea of like what we got in this book is all of these artists all of these writers poets mm-hmm. uh people mediated through you mm-hmm. um so I wonder could you reflect a little bit on the kind of the process and, and the effect it has on you. Is, is, is it as a sort of description of a pilgrimage? Does that mm. feel quite, uh, quite no, accurate no. to you?
2: No, I think it is. This morning I went to the 40-foot drop in Dublin, mm-hmm. obviously famous, the opening scene of Ulysses. Yeah, yeah. And I was sitting in the station and the station that I was sitting in, I, th- I made a note of it this morning, thinking, does it matter? But I'm sitting in a station through which passed Oscar Wilde, WB Yeats, James Joyce, Samuel Beckett, and Brendan Behan. Well, yes, it does. <laughs> it does, because they, in our lives, the interest of the narrative tied with the fact that their narratives, I mean, these personal narratives of really interesting people who have interpreted the world in all multifarious ways, um, uh, that, that lingers. Mm-hmm. because there are art lingers, you know, it lingers in Dublin because all of those people wrote about Irishness or Dublin or whatever, but there are mm-hmm. things which came from this place. So they were born of this place. They are birthed by this place. Um, to go to Europe uh, and to go to Jura's house and to knock on the door on his birthday, I knocked on the door of his birthday and they opened the door and I said, it's his birthday. And I thought they were going to let, I thought they were going to let me in for free. But they didn't. I had to pay my money and put the audio guide on and shoot round like a cow with this thing hanging around my neck, which I took off and ran up to the top of the building because at the top of the building, I knew was this astrological stroke astronomical observatory. Mm-hmm. And I really almost sincerely expected to go up there and see him with his long curly hair peering out at his, his telescope at Uranus or something. Um, but of course, the irony is his house was like 90 percent of Nuremberg had to be rebuilt after the Blitzkrieg. Um, and, you know, even in the graveyard of Nuremberg, where he's buried, his bones are no longer there. Mm. So the absence. But it is like Thesis's ship, you know, those people are dead. Those people in Pierce Station this morning, I mean, all those people are dead. Beckett, Joyce, Wilde, they're mm. all dead. Um, but they're alive in in their work um, uh, uh, and their spirit and in their guidance, you know, you and I, I know this for a fact, have been, you know, our lives have been drawn from from those writers. Mm -hmm. You know, without them, our lives would be very poor.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um,
2: And and, um, uh, it's like Shakespeare and Company. It's not the same shop, Mm -hmm. it's not run by the same people, not even the same. Well, there was sometimes they are the same books in there, but <laughs> it's um, you know. And when I slept in Shakespeare and Company, I knew Anne Ginsberg and William Burroughs had slept there. Probably not in the same bed, but I don't know. But um, <laughs> but you know, it's humans. We create mm. our new myths, don't we? Yeah. I mean, yeah. We really make our myths, and those are those are rich things and they are not to be disavowed.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think also there sort of our, our personal myths as well. So let's say I was to write a book about Jura. It would be the, 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 the lines I would trace would be my personal lines and my personal sort of journey and my personal pilgrimage. But one thing I think is uh, kind of magical about this, let's say this kind of literature, is that we could kind of accompany somebody else on the journey. We could see the kind of connections and we can, and, and maybe these are connections which will resonate fully with us maybe they're ones which will feel okay that's very personal to to Philip for example Mm -hmm. um but I think that's something which is uh one of the the very special things that the literature does actually is to give us kind of access to to the mind of another person and the sort of the the capacity to 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 empathize on a very a very deep level
2: Uh, absolutely and I I see I really, especially in the second half of the book, where I go out and actually try and find Jura himself, mm-hmm. is I I I want to be the the, the reader be standing with me. I am not delivering a lecture to this person, mm-hmm. you know. I, I'm not mediating for this person between the art. I am bearing witness. I'm describing it. I am. I really feel this, I really want to feel as so though I'm inviting in someone to come and stand next to me. Like when I was in Milan and I saw this wonderful Jura exhibition there and they had this beautiful, pristine print of the Melancholia engraving. And they, uh, I was just rapt, because, you know, it's just it's alchemical, this piece of art. And the, the woman who was, you know, the, 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 the uh, attendant in the, in the gallery. I sort of, she was walking by, so I said, look at this. Isn't that amazing? And I could see her looking at me and she says, is this the, is this the great day I can press the red buzzer and call security, <laughs> you know, because the nutter is in the building, you know. because so I just wanted to tell a human being, I wanted a human, a human being to say, no, yeah, that's incredible, you know, mm-hmm. wow. It's because art is a time, it's like Timothy Morton, the great eco-philosopher said, mm-hmm. all art is from the future. Art is a time machine. The yep. thing that you wanted to do when you're a kid, tra- traveling time, and you know, everything about kids is, is about traveling in time and space, and you either want to be somewhere else, or you want to be someone else, um, or this, uh, art allows, mm-hmm. allows you to do that. It allows you to do that, allows you to be with Dura in that point, you know, what he he bears witness to. And he, and I think that's, as we, as we were saying earlier, he draws you in. Mm-hmm. He's not exclusive, some art, is exclusive. Yeah, it's like I was talking to a friend of mine, Neil Tennant, he, mm. he, he, a singer, and um, we were talking about a book cover, and he said that book cover says, "This is not for you." Uh-huh. This is not for you. That book cover says, "Come in," right. and it's a, that really was an interesting thing mm. to me because um, I, you know it's. What draws you in, you know, and the images that Durer created of himself, the icons that he drew of himself, you know, these amazing three mm-hmm. self-portraits, which move from his grungy, sort of tousled-haired teenager with his earbuds tangled <laughs> in his red hair and a jellyfish-shaped hat on his head, to this absolute sophisticate who'd been to Venice and had Mm. the secret of perspective and was dressed by Versace, to the last image of him as God. Mm. He paints himself as God Mm. and then puts this uh, monogram AD, the D in the A, Anno Domini, Mm -hmm. after (laughs) Jura. You know, it's his apotheosis and such is the magnificence of him. You don't it's incredibly vain and narcissistic but it, it transcends that
1: mm-hmm.
2: and because you can feel what he's doing and you know you you know at a, you know uh, there are points in your life where you do feel godlike and,
0: and i guess that connects also to that idea of the the personal mythology as well that we were yeah, talking yeah. about like sort of that uh, through his through his artwork and through his representation of the world and himself in it it's in, in the same way or in, at least in a related way to uh, the way that you spend your personal mythology in yeah. in your books. He was perhaps doing it through his yeah. His self-portraits. I, I want to talk about, you said about, you used the word, um, you talk about his art and you said that it's not um, exclusive. Mm-hmm. Um, and you also write about Melancholia One, mm-hmm. um, that the only thing that critics agree on about it is that it's the most analysed object in the history of art. <laughs> do, you, do you think in a way it's kind of the fact that it's so hard to, to interpret and to analyse mm-hmm. is one of the things that prevents it from being exclusive in a way? Because whatever you bring to the picture is equally valid as even the most kind of educated art historian.
2: Exactly so. Because when it is that cryptic, no one can come in and say, well, actually, no, 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 Sonny, that's the wrong thing, you know. Mm-hmm. They can't say that. I, spe- I mean, this is the great thing. This is why I loved writing about someone who's been dead for 500 years. There's <laughs> lots of things I could say about them that someone can't really tell and say, well, they there's lots of suppositions and theories and hypotheses. Mm-hmm and apprehensions and intuitions um and all of this very interesting and it's much more interesting to throw those things up in the air and consider them uh the artist i think the art art works best when it's not didactic when it's Mm -hmm. not saying this is this this is what you should think about this this is how you should look at this um it's much more interesting to be inclusive as i say Mm -hmm. and to draw things in and um but it's like when you're a Teenager, and again, this shows my age, and I'm afraid your age as well. <laughs> when you're young, when we were young, we used to look album covers or CD covers, yeah, sure. yeah, yeah. and we just look for the clues. You know, mm-hmm. if it's your favourite band, the topography, what someone's wearing, what's that credit for? You know, why is it thanks to that person? You'd go mm-hmm. and try because you didn't have the internet then to look yeah, up who yeah, that yeah, yeah. person was. But all of those little clues oh my god this is his other world that I could be part of and I am part of it because I'm holding this piece of artwork which is an expression of the artist whose art I'm listening to if Jura had been an artist now that would have been so interesting to him that is exactly the sort of thing that he would have loved that really intense you know if he had could have a soundtrack to his work you know Mm -hmm. or animate it I think Jura's. The modern Jewers now are working in video games, you know, Interesting. Um, uh, that, that's, you know, and jurors own, you know, his images of the apocalypse are straight into a video game, straight, right. they, they sort of jump from TV and mm-hmm. they go straight to video game, you know, so there is that sense of his, his, he looked forward to this golden age of art and actually he sort of predicted it. And
0: also kind of like, uh, unlike a lot of the, the, the great masters, what one of the things like video games or like Andy Warhol you mentioned earlier, one of the things that really set Jura apart is the, I guess, the accessibility of his art. Because he was a printmaker, there wasn't just one canvas hanging in a church or in a palace or something like that. These these works were essentially reproducible. It was the first kind of uh, mass, uh, mass market art in a
2: way. As the critic Laura Cummings, great uh, critics said he was the first international artist mm-hmm. because he could be everywhere. Yeah, he could be in London. He could be in Oslo. He could be in Colombia. For God's sake! You know, by the end of the 16th century, his juror had re- his r- rhinoceros reached col- a Colombian villa.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, um, the printing—that's the key. Printing is more important than the internet. Mm-hmm. It, it changes everything. Everything. Everything comes from that, and to print. Images, so that people who are not merchant princes, who are not emperors, who are not wealthy, privileged people, but ordinary, and of course the new middle class that is developing at this point, can have these images, they can put them up, or they can, they have their instructions to colour them in, like yep, yep. modern colouring in books, you know. <laughs> Um, There were franchises, Dürer had franchises of these works, which would be he was sending out the work manufactured by a studio, not necessarily by his own hand, the way that Warhol's images weren't Mm -hmm. created by his own hand. And they're going out there, but they are bits of Dürer. And it's like the relic. It's like in Nuremberg were the holy relics of the ancient Roman Empire and the holy Roman Empire. Um, And there were things called touch relics where pieces of paper were touched. To the holy lance, so these were actually relics of sorry, the relics of Christ's crucifixion. Touched the holy lance that had pierced Christ's side, and you had that piece of paper, and that paper was imbued with the power of that relic.
1: Mm-hmm. It's
2: the same thing with as paintings, his drawings, his engravings. They were going out there, so people had art, they had art in their way, and they could paste them up on their wardrobes and doors like modern pinups, you
0: mm-hmm. know. And uh, this is in the context, of course, that one, 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 um thing that you say in the book, which is kind of mind-blowing, is that somebody in Jura's time would see fewer man-made images than somebody in our time would see in a minute. Yeah. Um, and so this this is this is not just um, this is not just a case of sort of the the beauty of his work, but just the 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 fact that they are seeing these images and maybe a sort of a quantity of images that is likely to be quite overwhelming to the fifteenth century
2: um, mindset. Well, exactly because the, his first woodcuts and his big first number one hit, as it were, were the Prince of the Apocalypse that she created yes. in fourteen ninety eight in advance of the turning of the of the centuries crucial point in it, turning any mm-hmm. century is always a worrisome time. The fantasy secular, as we know, is always, whether it's the, the millennium bug or the, <laughs> uh, the, the, you know, the, the, the decadence of the 1890s, um, the, the collective cultural hysteria that builds up around that. I mean, in Europe at this time, people were building towers to avoid the flood that was about to come mm-hmm. in 1500. And what does Dior do? He, he creates that apocalypse He creates images of the Book of Revelations. These images, even now, they scare you because Mm -hmm. they show angels fighting dragons above like suburban towns. Uh And they are three-dimensional angels. They're not like, they're not like, um, uh, you know, Renaissance um, sort of murals, it's sort of a sense of flatness or remoteness. They're there. Mm-hmm. they're there and these devils have worms coming out of their eyes and it's they are they're a cgi trailer <laughs> for armageddon you know the four horsemen of the apocalypse riding roughshod off over the populace you know spreading death and disaster and famine and plague mm. they're so believable believe if they if they have that effect now what the hell would they have done in 1498 no one, no one could own images before that, really. Mm-hmm. And suddenly, my God, <laughs> you know, I mean, just and they are, and they're very beautiful as well as being very terrible. There is a terrible beauty. They are very, they are evocative of W. B. Yeats in a way, you know. They have that, that, that and and so, and they are very f- um, like Orby Beardsley again, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, and, and Beardsley was influenced by Dura. Um There's this sense of um, imagining the unimaginable um, the unholiness of, because he's depicting seasons seems the bible but he's actually depend, depicting evil
1: mm.
2: and, and pestilence all these things which are you almost conjuring those things up you know that I'm, that's what that's what Martin Luther was afraid that you would be conjuring these and you would be releasing devils and mm. demons Jura didn't believe that I mean Jured didn't believe that he 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 was he was looking to the future i mean he yeah, had a much yeah. more rational response he's more rational in many ways than luther in some ways you know um but do yeah you,
0: do you think this um these visions of the apocalypse um because there's also that um that image which is extraordinarily evocative of the the nuclear mushroom cloud uh, do, do you think it's that in a way which Contributes to the fact that people keep coming back to Jura because you said, you know, the the fantasy siècle idea, mm-hmm. uh, or not even fantasy siècle, like someone like Thomas Mann, who was living through essentially, mm-hmm. you know, the the twenties and thirties and watching mm-hmm. the society he'd he'd grown up in be be dismantled and fall mm-hmm. apart and collapse into to Nazism. Mm-hmm. Do you think that it's the this sense of an ending in a way that keeps Jura relevant to, uh, to successive generations of, of artists and writers.
2: Absolutely. There's a great um, series of essays by Frank Commode called The Sense of an Ending, and in that he looks at the uh, various apocalypses that humans have, 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 have addressed in, in, in modern times, basically mm-hmm. in, in the last thousand years, well, 500 years really, and how they always are disconfirmed Mm -hmm. but there's something that uh, we derive our sense of self-worth and uh, a lot of our culture from the fact that um that we do survive these things and and that um but they also have a huge artistic power Mm -hmm. they create a lot of really great art Uh, partly because you know being happy and content doesn't really produce a lot of good art (laughs) you know i mean sylvia plath i mean if she'd lived as a happy housewife in baltimore somewhere you know rather than you know her Mm tumultuous life just wouldn't have produced the genius that she produced you know um so there's there is that as well um so but you know the human beings always um it reassures us of our sometimes of our specialness mm-hmm. as a species, which is nowadays I find difficult because this sense of the hierarchy of the natural world, which we now really is a know as a is a canard really. but uh, mm-hmm. uh, and um, but yes, yeah, so so the the, 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 the the fact that human culture that's what I really felt right through the pe- pandemic. and I was really feeling this as I was out editing the book, writing and finishing mm-hmm. the book and editing it and thinking, I, you know, art is so bloody important. Uh-huh. And, and what really, um, one of the real things that was driving my book, and as you know this personally, I, Adam, because you feel it too, is what the the harm that um, has been created by the, the mm-hmm. EU referendum, the, the mm-hmm. really visceral harm, uh, and the harm that is inflicted on people who are going to come after us, I and mean, already on my nieces and nephews specifically, I think, but, you know, I've just... Yeah. So I was really thinking, because no one made the case here in the UK anyway, well, I'm not in the UK, I've been in Ireland, uh, another <laughs> <all laughs> story there, but um, um, was no one made the case for art. Right. For culture. They never yeah. do. And what, and what is Britain's most prestigious, most effective, most, if you want to bring it down to economic terms, most lucrative export? It's its culture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Culture. And-
0: and also, as um, Armando Iannucci pointed out when I interviewed him a few weeks ago, is that that was what sustained us during the pandemic. Yes. You know, whether, whether it be books, whether it be Netflix, whether it be you know magazines, poetry, whatever. It it, it was that that
2: stopped us all over the world from going Absolutely. completely mad absolutely absolutely it was so you know i i curated this reading digital reading of the ancient man the rhyme of the mm. ancient mariner which again purely by chance we've been working it for three years it, it happened to be released during the pandemic and just and it was just symptomatic of everyone this thirst for poetry that was so yeah. encouraging oh my god you know <laughs> just thinking oh dear you know it's just like for me that's art's revenge is <laughs> that Okay, so you're gonna, you know, we're gonna go through this worst period. Having through so a self-inflicted disaster, we go into a another self-inflicted disaster, which is zoonotic, <laughs> probably. You know, right? Um, and I think, you know, that I think there was a sense of defiance. We'll we'll read poetry, mm-hmm. and you know, uh, there's not much we can do. We're locked in our houses. And you know, I just came back from Spain, where the book was released, was published last last week, and. Um, you know, these you know, people in Madrid, you know, this really made me think of Shakespeare and Company. It was a great bookshop in Madrid, Madrid during the lockdown, the severe lockdown when people mm-hmm. weren't allowed to leave their flats. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, and people without gardens, without balconies. I mean, it was just, I was speaking to people, you know, just there this bookshop in, in, in Madrid, this woman running this bookshop, she somehow managed to start up this service where she delivered books mm-hmm. by bicycle around the city, the deserted dystopian city, you know, mm-hmm. delivering books. Oh, God, I love that. I mean, someone's going to make a movie about that. Mm-hmm. I mean, what, it's like, you know, when Shakespeare and company were going through troubled times during the pandemic and everyone was getting very wide, I mean, I think the, the response to that on social media and, and just people were just... Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, I'm not going to see that go down. I yeah. just, I'm not going to allow that to happen. Because that's it, an expression of our spirit.
0: It's incredibly heartening. And I think maybe that sort of the fact that people turned to art in a way shows that sort of this is ultimately what we do prioritise, you know, given, given the, the the space and the time to to, to, to to spend our lives how we wish to spend them it is in books it is in poetry it is in films yeah. you know it's that kind of it's, it's in that kind of that enrichment of the um, of the spirit that um mm. that art uh, that art does because I think and this is just coming back to that idea of personal mythology which I think um I'd like to to to, to finish this conversation on is that I think all of that feeds into the way that we Understand our lives and the way that we tell our stories and the way that we can deal with and process certain things that happen to us. And one of the things in Albert and the Whale, where that's very pronounced, is with this um medical condition. You find yourself uh with mm. uh Dupitren's or Dupitren's uh, contracture. Yeah. Um and what perhaps you could just explain to our listeners a little bit what this is and uh, Mm. and just give us an insight for people who haven't read the book into how in in a sense you were able to incorporate that into your personal mythology and 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 deal with the 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 condition in that way
2: yeah because I think in the when you're writing anything because it's such an internal sedentary process it makes you think about your physical self it's one of the reason why I swim a lot, because yeah. that's the kind of physical antidote to what we do. We all have different ways of dealing with the way you and I spend most of our time doing this sort of thing, being on <laughs> a screen, or, you know, so many people are like that. Um, is you do you think about your physical self, what you do with your physical self, because increasingly because of that relationship to technology, it, 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 it disables I use that word advisedly it disables your body mm-hmm. you know because your body is no longer really that useful part mm. of your thumbs and your brain uh-huh. you know uh or your fingers and um and my fingers were going wonky and my fingers were going is a condition jupitron's contracture is named after baron Guillaume jupitron I, I don't mm-hmm. know whether i pronounce it right but and it was in the rue de la du, rue du where Shakespeare and Company, of course, first opened. Yeah. Um, so powerful for me coming to um, <laughs> the Shakespeare and Company when I was writing. Because it's the the funny thing is, is the book I was starting to write it when I had my first visit to um, uh, to as, as anyone will see, because there's there's a scene from that um, a visit to the Natural History Museum. Mm-hmm. And then I, as I was finishing it, I came back to say, so it's really interesting. It's kind of both ended by Paris, and there's another aspect of that which I won't say here because it will spoil the book but <laughs> um and so that sense of um my dysfunction is quite ironic you know because it's like my hands I really need my hands and these hands my hands will start to bend Beckett had the same thing mm-hmm. it, 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 it it turns your hands into claws it, you know my finger was could not bend it was it was touching the palm of my hand and um it's actually something which is traced back to northern genes, especially from uh, Viking. It's, mm. it's, it's called the Viking disease because we, we think it was spread by Vikings throughout the country. Because, and of course, the Vikings ended up in Hungary. So and there's an artist that we're talking about who had Hungarian uh, uh, ancestry. And uh, so but I had my, my hand was so bad it had to be operated on. And so I was operated on this three-hour operation where I was laid out um, and I decided to have just local anesthetic. Mm-hmm. So it was a block, they block up the arms nerves. So it was exactly like the Rembrandt painting of, of um the, the Dr. Torp's anatomy lesson, which is a very Jura-esque. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We know that Rembrandt was influenced by Jura. Uh, and it's a very Jura-esque thing. And so halfway through this operation, I'm, so, so I'm talking to the surgeon. Now. The three surgeons, three hand surgeons. Apparently, hand surgery, hand surgery is more difficult than brain surgery. Mm -hmm. apparently so it was really long operation with the full cast of characters in the operating theatre so it is a performance and you are at the heart of this performance so you're being operated upon I felt like my subject I felt like Jura because I knew that Jura also had this condition Mm -hmm. and so I saw my hand being opened up I mean literally my hand was opened up it was unfolded in front of me like a flower Mm -hmm. And they're taking bits out of it. I was thinking, I can't spare those bits. (laughs) Like Tony Hancock said, I can't spare that much blood. It you know, blood transfusion, um, blood donation. But, um, and and I said to the surgeon, of course, surgeons are very, they're very interesting people because they're very disassociated with what they do. They are completely Mm -hmm. in what they're doing, but they must disassociate from the patient as a human being in a way, because they, they, they can't be they can't be thinking in that way. They have to be thinking about it as a technical thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I said to the head surgeon, I said, do you know the Anatomy of Dr. Toll by, by Rembrandt? <laughs> <laughs> we don't often dis- discuss culture in the, in the operating theatre. You know, but it was really funny and it did make me... So It I felt that, you know, and because Dürer's... When you see Dürer's portraits of himself, the focus is not even on the eyes almost is on the hands because mm-hmm. they are the hands of god you know and that's they are the tools that make his art and i was thinking you know am i about to lose my tool you know uh, uh, the way to uh, i write you know whatever um i mean i wasn't going to but it was just that physical sense of being dissected and i was thinking mm-hmm. this is just what i'm doing to Jura, you know sort of like <laughs> taking him apart uh, and trying to diagnose him but um but ultimately, you know, uh, asking questions which can't be answered—his own questions, juror questions—the question that he asked himself all the time, all the time: What is beauty? Mm-hmm. His answer always was, "I don't know."
0: Mm-hmm. That sounds like a perfect place for us to finish. Philip, I could go on talking with you for hours about this. I hope we'll get the chance to do it in person in Paris soon. Um, of course, Albert and the Whale is available from uh, Shakespeare and Company, from our online store as well, or from neighborhood independent bookstores, wherever people uh, may be based. Uh, all that remains for me to say is, Philip Hoare, thank you
2: so, so much for joining us today. It's been totally my pleasure. Thanks very much, And And thank you to Shakespeare and Company who, who bookended this book as well. Oh, Thank you it, it's much. our honour. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast with me, Adam Biles. Since you've made it this far, I hope that means you've enjoyed what you've heard and will consider rating us in whatever app you're using. The theme music is Mr Ginger by the incredible jazz musician Alex Freiman, taken from his album, Play It Gentle. I'll be back next week. Until then, take care, happy reading, and thanks again for listening.